Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education Pediatric Podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence-based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice. And now, here's Grand Rounds. Good morning, uh, colleagues and friends. Welcome to our Tuesday morning Grand Rounds. It's great to have everyone here. Hopefully you're enjoying your cup of coffee on this beautiful fall morning. And, uh, you know, some great news that came out uh, last week with the vaccine for 5 to 11-year-olds. We've started vaccinating. Uh, We had a a fantastic clinic uh, yesterday morning at Connecticut Children's for the kids that are uh, suffered chronic conditions. They, They signed up very quickly, and I can see the smiles on their faces. A few tears, of course, when you put a needle in your arm and you're five. Uh, Some kids may have a tear, but in fact, they were mostly joyful and the parents were very thankful. So thank you to our team for getting that done. And just remind uh, your families and and even your, you know, if you have kids uh, on Sunday, uh, November 14th, we will have a a major vaccination event at Dunkin' Donut Park here in Hartford uh, from 10 o'clock in the morning till 4 p.m. Uh, you can sign up there in our website. We have a number. We can actually post it also on the on the uh, uh, Q&A here so that everyone can see it. And uh, please sign up and call in. If you don't want to do that, you can walk up and there will be, be a fun event. So for anyone who has children, they're 5 to 11, they need to be vaccinated. It would be a great place to have it. I checked the weather. It's going to be in the 50s, so it's a good time to bring the kids. We'll have uh, little gifts and cards and can have some hot chocolate donuts and enjoy a uh, a festive event on a, on the on this uh, time of vaccinating and getting us out of the COVID-19 pandemic. So uh, hang in there. We're almost there. We're making great progress. Uh, today we have a, a really a fantastic uh, uh, lecture on uh, hospital-based violence intervention. This is on the injury prevention side. And I'm going to ask uh, my, my colleague, uh, Kevin Borup, who's the executive director of the Injury Prevention Center, to introduce uh, our speaker, Dr. Fisher. Uh, Good morning. Um, Dr. Kyle Fisher is a clinical assistant professor in emergency medicine at the University of Maryland uh, School of Medicine, uh, where he's also a fellowship director in health policy. He also works clinically at the University of Maryland uh, Prince George's Hospital Center. Um, Dr. Fisher received his combined MD-MPH from the University of Wisconsin, and currently he serves as the policy director for a national organization the Health Alliance for Violence Intervention. Uh, In this role, uh, Dr. Fisher um, uh, leads uh, and organizes uh, the development of of policies to end community violence. Uh, Dr. Fisher's interest in violence prevention stems from his emergency medicine residency in Philadelphia, where he volunteered with the Healing Hurt People Program a support program for people 8 to 35 who've been shot, stabbed, uh, assaulted, or have witnessed uh, those events. Over the past two years, I've gotten to know Dr. Fisher uh, through his work with the Connecticut Collaborative called the Connecticut Hospital-Based Violence Intervention Program Collaborative, of which Connecticut Children's uh, is a part. Over these last two years, uh, Dr. Fisher and his colleagues at the Health Alliance for Violence Intervention have worked to advise the collaborative on on many issues related to policy, 
And one of the great outcomes from this is a law in Connecticut that was passed last year that is the first in the nation uh, to uh, allow for Medicaid reimbursement for violence uh, intervention services. Um, so I would like to, you to um, join me in welcoming Dr. Fisher this morning for a talk that I, I believe is going to be uh, both informative and provocative, uh, a, a talk that's really critical in public health about uh, how do we end uh, community violence and how do we build uh, um, trauma-informed systems of care. And, and now I'll turn it over to Dr. Fisher. Thank you, Dr. Borup. I really appreciate it. Um, it is absolutely an honor to be here this morning, um, virtually. Uh, I, I saw all of you vaccinating the kids on the evening news this week, so congratulations on that. Uh, brought a smile to my face, and um, it's great to be here. Like uh, Dr. Borup said, we've been working together for the last couple of years now, uh, working on building out these systems in Connecticut, and we're excited to share with you some of what some of this work is and what it's based on and how you can bring these principles to the bedside yourself. Uh, so just to get started, um, I have no conflicts of interest to disclose today um, and brief objectives, right? So uh, one, I wanna describe the structure of what hospital-based violence intervention programs are and kind of some of the theory of the practice. Two, talk about the research and uh, evaluations of uh, what we know about them. And then three, I uh, really want to talk about some lessons, you know, big picture things that uh, you all can take home uh, about working in medicine and working with these pa with patients uh, and how this can inform you going through. So to start out, um, I just want to, you know, make clear that violence is something that affects all Americans. Right. And, you know, we often talk, times talk about treating violence as a public health issue, uh, but that really means, you know, being explicit about what a public health approach is. Right. It means looking at the data, looking for patterns and then looking at risk factors and protective factors and seeing how you can minimize risk factors, bolster protective factors and doing things in a very systematic way. So that's how, you know, we, we should be thinking about this while at the same time making sure that we remain human and taking care of patients in a humanistic way. So if we look at just kind of a ground rule and just remember gun violence isn't one thing. There's no such thing as one disease process of gun violence, uh, even though there's one kind of complement, common implement, but we're talking about suicide. We're talking about community violence, uh, sometimes known as street violence. Uh, intimate partner violence, legal intervention, mass casualty incidents, accidental trauma, right? So these are six different, you know, big buckets of uh, gun violence, but they all are responsive to different risk and protective factors. So they all have different um, ways that you address them. But in the big picture, we got to remember that there's no single face of gun violence. And in fact, uh, there's unfortunately, and very, very sadly, no one that's spared from this in America. But like I said, if we look, there are patterns here, right? So this is just the data from the CDC, big picture. Um, I think this gets lost in the mix a lot. So um, we know that homicides are about one third of the gun violence in America uh, per year. 
whereas suicide are two thirds. And that's something that um, I think, unfortunately, the suicide uh, piece gets neglected quite a bit. But, you know, it's our job to remember that, keep an eye on the ball. Legal intervention is much, much smaller. So 520, this is almost, you know, very, very small, but very important. Uh, unintentional injuries uh, are about that same level. And then undetermined over here. And then within homicide, right, mass casualty shootings are in there as well. And despite the fact that um, they make the bulk of the news media coverage, uh, it is a small minority of these 14,000 homicides. Uh, so just worth keeping in mind for when we're taking care of our patients, um, the different types of approaches that uh, we need to be uh, developing resources towards taking care of. And I do always like to start out with just a simple question from kind of a philosophical uh, lens, which is, you know, why do we have gun violence? Why do we have violence in the first place? And throughout American history and human history, there have been a number of different theories that have kind of come and gone uh, with, uh, you know, the leading theories. So one is this idea of, is it just an innate character flaw? You know, bad people do bad things. Is it a random act of human behavior? You know, the, this idea that, you know, someday someone snaps and uh, commits a mass casualty shooting. There's other ideas of, is it really just a combination of environmental factors and neurodevelopmental, kind of like asthma, right? So uh, perhaps you live in a community that has a lot, a lot of smog and there's something uh, to do with your body that, uh, you know, you have reactive airway disease. And then there's kind of this other model of uh, in the infectious disease model, uh, where you know, the idea that violence really acts like a infectious disease, not unlike COVID-19, where if you are afflicted by uh, gun violence, it's when you injure someone else or uh, that it makes them more likely to injure other people. Now, I'm hoping that all of you are starting out by knowing that uh, the bad people do bad things argument is false, um, especially uh, especially coming from the children's hospital. We know that at least uh, in my kids' uh, classroom, uh, I certainly don't think that's the case and there's no data to support that. We know that it's not random too because we're talking about risk factors and protective factors and we know about the patterns here. Um, and then these other two, you know, there's no right or wrong answer to this, but um, I, I would posit that there's some degree of truth to both of these, but it's, not really hitting this, you know, limit of scientific rigor that we would uh, expect. But conceptually, it's worth thinking about the idea of how biology and environmental factors and, um, you know, the idea that perhaps it might be transmissible, that these are all things that we should think about. And I'll get into this in just a little bit. But for the purposes of community violence, I, I do want to raise the idea that gun violence is rooted in trauma. And when I say trauma, I don't mean, you know, if you're working at your trauma center and you hear overhead, you know, level one trauma coming in 10 minutes, level one trauma, not that kind of trauma. But what I really mean is little t trauma, as in the adverse childhood experiences, right? 
Um, we're all familiar with them, or at least I hope we are now. They're those bucket of, you know, 10 things of abuse, neglect, uh, household dysfunction. So exposure to things like physical violence, emotional uh, abuse, sexual abuse, uh, neglect, household dysfunction. So your kid, someone in your house with mental illness or intimate partner violence, divorce, incarcerated relatives, substance abuse. These are things that we know from the research actually gets to our body and affects our brain in, you know, deep ways. We know that higher uh, ACE scores uh, cause cortisol dysregulation and it, you know, profoundly uh, affects us and not just the way we think about the world, but uh, the way that our body responds to the world. And, you know, sadly, we, there's been a wealth of research showing that in the average person, uh, exposure to ACEs is different than in people that are violently injured. So in the average human being, when the CDC, you know, polls the nation, uh, or however many people they poll, um, the vast majority of people, uh, over half have zero or one experiences with this. Uh, and then another, you know, 20% or so of people have a score of two. And uh, then once you get to uh, three or more, uh, the CDC just cuts it off and they say, you know, four or more is 12%. Whereas on the flip side, unfortunately, we know that when someone has gotten to the point where they've been injured, that we have flipped this up on its head. So this is a study out of uh, Philadelphia for, for my mentors at the Healing Hurt People program at Drexel, where they looked at uh, folks that had been in the hospital, had been violently injured. And what they found is that at least half of the people in their study uh, were starting out with that score of four or more. Remember, this is the score where the CDC just says, you know, four or more will lump them together. Not many people have that. But in violently injured patients, that's where they're starting out. So trauma is something that is just deeply embedded in patients that uh, are violently injured and is something that we have to be on high alert for. And it's something that, you know, we just need to address and know that it is there. I also, you know, want to add, I mentioned that, you know, there is some environmental factors beyond, um, adverse childhood experiences and trauma. And I, I like to um, bring up some things that, you know, a lot of times we don't necessarily think about. And I think as uh, pediatricians and children, uh, pediatric specialists, I think you all probably are much better in tune with this one particular idea than uh, most of my adult colleagues. But I think it's worth uh, looking up is that turns out that lead exposure in childhood uh, actually is a huge risk factor for uh, violent victimization or uh, engaging in violent uh, uh, activities. So this is a very interesting study from about 20 years ago. It was a case control st study done up in Pittsburgh, I believe, or somewhere in Pennsylvania. And they looked at um, two groups of uh, uh, adolescents that were about 18 years or 16 to 18 and that were involved in the juvenile justice system and found that um, exposure to lead toxicity uh, was a significant risk factor for uh, being involved in the justice system. And this makes sense, right? So 
we know that exposure to lead affects the frontal lobe and that affects our ability to do that kind of complex planning and uh, can interfere with uh, impulsivity, things like that. And we know that much of violence is an impulsive act. So um, this is one of those ways where, you know, even if you're taking, even if you're not thinking about community violence yet, you know, you're taking care of small children, uh, making sure that the childhood lead screenings are done and making sure that we do, you know, all of the abatement things to take care of that is a primary prevention intervention that you can do very, very early on. And this is really, you know, it's a team sport from, uh, you know, all ages. So I, I like to bring that up. So now, like I said before, um, you know, with community violence, there are risk factors, there are protective factors. And, you know, sadly, one of the biggest risk factors for violent injury is being injured before. And this creates something that we like to refer to as the cycle of violence. And this is a diagram I'm gonna go through just over the course of the next five minutes or so um, and walk you through this in a number of slides um, to show you that how this cycle works. And obviously this is overly simplified. This is, you know, very, very high level. It's just kind of um, a way to think about things, but it's worth uh, going through just one by one to think about from the patient's perspective, how this might uh, play out. And obviously um, some of these signs and symptoms and the way that we're, you, you're gonna address it um, are gonna differ uh, based on the kid's age, right? So an eight-year-old is not a 16-year-old, uh, you know, the standard disclaimer, children are not little adults. Uh, so the, you know, older kids get, the uh, closer it'll be to adults, but um, things are gonna be slightly different. So let's just start at the bottom, right? So down here at the bottom, you have a kid that gets uh, shot, stabbed, or assaulted, and they go to the hospital. Um, and then eventually we know that you know, they'll be discharged, hopefully, right? They're gonna survive, um, I hope so. Um, sadly, we know that there's a good chance that this isn't the first time that this uh, can or will have happened. And this is not a new idea that this is cyclical. Uh, this is a paper that I like to cite because it's, if you look at the top left, it's 30 years old. Right, so it's from the Journal of Trauma, it's entitled Urban Trauma, Trauma, Chronic Recurrent Disease. And it showed that back in this, the data period was actually from 1982 to 1987, uh, showed that the re-injury rate was 44% and the five-year mortality rate was 20%. These are otherwise healthy people that don't have, you know, history of heart disease or CHF or um, cancer or anything like that, otherwise healthy people with a five-year mortality of 20%. You know, this is a tragedy, tragedy. Any other medical condition, we would be on top of this. We would be doing everything that we could possibly do to make sure that they don't get hurt again. Um, and sadly, as I get through the cycle of trauma, you're, you're going to see that the numbers, you know, we, we haven't fixed this, um, but we're working on it. But okay, so let's back to a cycle of trauma. So let's say the kid gets discharged. And then we know at the uh, top that the psychological injuries 
uh, are tremendous and may you know, take a longer time to heal than the physical injury. So, and we're talking about things like post-traumatic stress disorder and acute stress disorder. And the data from this is pretty old. And somehow, I, you know, it doesn't seem like it's really seeped into the clinical care yet for, you know, standard trauma management. And I'm not sure why that is. And I certainly wasn't told it in medical school and I'm not that far out. I'm still fairly early. Um, but in this study from, again, like 20 years ago, uh, showed that nearly 80% of survivors of gunshot wounds, when you look at them about 20 years later, or sorry, about uh, eight months later, uh, have signs and symptoms of gunshot of post-traumatic stress disorder. And I like to read off some of these symptoms because I think they're very, very illustrative. And um, I think they're things that you can take to the bedside to talk to patients because patients you know, when you talk about post-traumatic stress disorder or trauma, it doesn't really mean a lot, but once you get to these symptoms, uh, it can be, you know, very, very easy for patients to understand. So um, I'm just gonna kind of rattle these off, right? So symptoms uh, in the last week, any reminder about uh, feelings about being shot, 60%. Pictures of being shot popped into my mind, 60%. Other things keep making me think about being shot. I thought about being shot when I didn't mean to. I had strong waves of feelings about being shot. I had trouble falling asleep or staying asleep because pictures of, or thoughts came to my mind, 40%. I had dreams about being shot, 37. And then on avoidance symptoms, uh, some, of, some of these th same things, right? I tried not to think about it. I, avoided, I avoid letting myself getting upset about it. I stay away from reminders about being shot. I try not to talk about it. I try to remove the memories of this. I was aware that I still had a lot of feelings about shot, being shot, but I didn't deal with them. My feelings were kind of numb. And I felt as if what happened wasn't even real. Now think about this. There are a lot of really practical ways that this is gonna show up for any of your kids that you're taking care of, right? So um, those strong waves of feelings, that might you know, present as kids acting out in school. I had trouble falling asleep, sleep disturbances are huge. And this is something that um, is a very easy way to talk to patients and their families about it uh, because it you know, is very understandable. And this is my go-to question when I wanna um, get into talking to patients about trauma. Um, I just ask them, hey, how have you been sleeping recently? Because people have no problems telling you, yeah, I've had trouble sleeping. Um, or if you ask a kid's parent, yeah, it's uh, not sleeping through the night anymore. I don't know, he keeps waking up in the middle of the night and coming in my bed. Um, those are things that you can think about. And that's a tip off that some of this is traumatic injury um, and trauma. And I also, at the bottom, you know, my feelings about being shot were kind of numb. I think this is a very, very important um, sign and symptom that um, we know that gets our patients misinterpreted and in trouble because people see this and they see this numbing and they interpreted it as being cold, not caring, maybe they get diagnosed with like a personality disorder and said that this is something we can't treat when well, it's really signs and symptoms of trauma. 
Um, so I, I think this is very, very important to keep an eye on these things. These are very practical things that you can just take to the best. So back to our cycle. So what do people do? Human beings are human beings and we don't like to go to the doctor. We don't know that we need to go to the doctor or ask for help. Um, so we do things to self-treat or uh, make ourselves feel safe, safer. So most commonly, and this, this is more in your adolescence, right? Your, you know, 14 to 18 population. Uh, so for those positive symptoms, uh, those intrusive thoughts, uh, kids have found that cannabis helps for difficulty sleeping, alcohol, uh, people think help, helps, and for not feeling safe, getting wet. And there's plenty of research on this. Uh, so uh, show you there are studies showing that uh, people use cannabis to uh, uh, treat PTSD on their own. Uh, there are same thing for alcohol, uh, not new. Uh, so these are risk, these are both other risk factors that uh, you need to be addressing, screening for, treating as you can be, because knowing that it's probably something that your patient is at risk for. And then we're back around to the rest of the cycle, right? Where uh, a kid either gets re-injured or retaliates, and at which point they go to jail. And if they're re-injured, uh, they're either back in the hospital, back on the cycle, or sadly, it relates to death. And now the cycle, you know, I, I showed you that study from 1989, uh, which showed that the re-injury rate was 44%. Now this trial, that trial has been redone like this is literally 19 times. This is from a systematic review done by criminologists at Rutgers. And as you can see, most of the re-injury rat rates come in at about 25 to 35%. Uh, so it's exceedingly common and we really haven't moved the ground on this. So what can we do about it? This is where hospital-based violence intervention programs come into play. This is an article uh, that was in the Huffington Post a couple of years ago about a program that I helped start in Prince George's County, uh, Maryland, uh, entitled Hospitals Are Doing What Politicians Haven't Stopped Gun Violence. How's this look? So, using our, oops, let me slide. So, big picture, you know, the public health official definition is hospital based violence intervention programs. They combine a, a brief hospital intervention with intensive community-based case management and provide targeted services for high-risk populations to reduce risk factors for re-injury and retaliation while cultivating protective factors, right? So this is the public health model. Identify those are at high, high risk uh, and then uh, do everything you can to reduce the risk factors and uh, support the protective factors. In practice, um, I have kind of a very crude, uh, diagram that I'd like to walk through. Um, and if you look at this and start from left to right, so on the left side, this is, you know, the life before injury. And as you can see, before the injury for a person, we've got all of those adverse childhood experiences that uh, we know are likely to exist. Then the patient is injured and there are the physical injuries, sure, but the psychological injuries, uh, like we just mentioned, uh, are just as big. And then in order to recovery, um, there are different things that can push you in either ways, right? So you can have supportive services to deal with um, some of the sequelae of injury, the 
um, trauma, the substance use, alcohol use, if it's a kid, you know, truancy or school, uh, peer mentorship. Uh, whereas, you know, on the other side, you know, risk factors for it happening again or worsening of this trauma are um, that untreated PTSD, substance use, retaliation, because we know if, uh, if a kid retaliates and ends up in the juvenile justice system, that justice involvement is in itself a very large risk factor for being re-injured. So how do we take care of this? Well, it takes a team. It is a team-based approach. So the hospital-based violence intervention team is a big team and we need to address all of these needs. So in the center of it, in orange, that's the patient. In the middle, you know, like everything. And luckily, you know, coming from a children's uh, hospital, you guys do so much better with team-based care than I think our adult colleagues do. So I think you're already starting out in the right place uh, uh, just with the mindset. And, you know, we have to do everything we can to address all these different risk factors. So you're going to have your doctor, you'll have your trauma nurse, uh, you'll have uh, uh, someone to do case management, uh, you'll have social worker, uh, counselor, or a mental health provider. And then the most important person is this violence prevention professional. So the violence prevention professional, this is the frontline worker that is really the engine to getting this all done that uh, generally we hire someone that is from the community that uh, uh, the patient is generally from, uh, knows the neighborhood, knows the people, uh, frequently has been injured themselves. So they can relate to the patient and say, you know, when this happened to me, these are the things that I thought about and these are the ways that it affected me. I had trouble sleeping and, you know, I felt anger um, and it's, Somewhere, you know, you can think of it kind of as a community health worker, but we, you know, train those people to work in hospitals and know the basic hospital stuff like your HIPAA training and all that stuff. Uh, but also, you know, specifically trained in trauma-informed care uh, and being able to navigate all of those other social services that someone will need. And that violence prevention professional is going to meet with the patient uh, and help them walk them through their journal journey. And how this looks um, is kind of similar to this. So when it starts out, kids in the hospital or in the emergency department, they wanna get in that intervention as soon as possible. Hopefully in the emergency department, if they're too sick, they go to the, um, you know, have to go to surgery, perhaps it's on the wards. Uh, and, you know, as soon as possible meeting with either the kid or their family or their girlfriend or their boyfriend or whoever it's with uh, to gain trust, see how they're doing and check out what the environment is. You know, we know that in this moment, it is, you know, a golden opportunity. It's very similar in the research bear this out, bears this out to when grownups have heart attacks and they're in their hospital bed and they're thinking about whether or not it's time to quit smoking. There's this golden opportunity and we know that that's a great time to quit smoking because people are thinking about it and that's what they wanna do. And similarly, after someone's injured, uh, it is a huge life-changing event that they are seeking safety, seeking uh, improvements in their life and uh, seeking to do whatever they can to 
get out on the other side. So this is where the violence prevention professional can offer that support uh, and see if there is someone in the family or friends that is uh, contemplating retaliation can do that crisis intervention. And then, you know, promptly provide that trauma-informed care. You know, as the kid is in the hospital starting to talk about things that they may feel that um, difficulty sleeping or those, you know, trouble regulating emotions and, uh, you know, feelings of anger and giving the kid and their family um, a heads up on what trauma looks like so that uh, they can uh, be on the lookout and start getting plugged into those mental health services. And then we start arranging those comprehensive case management. So it may be, you know, related to school, it may be related to, um, you know, very basic needs. So if it's a kid, maybe they need, they're 17 and they need a driver's license uh, and maybe they need help uh, getting back to classes. Um, uh, maybe they've had trouble doing those things because they can't find documentation like a birth certificate. We do a comprehensive needs assessment and, you know, make sure that all of those small things that, you know, many of us would think are small and inconsequential, but are really hugely important and make sure that we get all those barriers off the table uh, so that there's nothing standing in their way to a full recovery. And then over the next six months, nine months, or a year, we address those social determinants of health and move upstream uh, to prevent these, this re-injury from happening. So does this work? Well, starting out with the adults, uh, because uh, it's the data is easier to do on adults and uh, it's, um, that's where the majority of the trials are. Uh, we have three randomized controlled trials of this model, uh, one from uh, Baltimore, one from Chicago, and one from Virginia. Um, so uh, Dr. Cooper, he found that uh, the re-injury rate uh, in the intervention group, 5% compared to 36%, West Zone in Chicago, 8% versus 20%. And then Dr. Aguitanos, uh, Michelle, found that uh, there was only 5.6% to 6.2%. Uh, and so that was a negative trial. There was some subgroup benefit of it. Uh, as you may have noticed from my previous slide that in both of these groups, uh, the rates of re-injury are less than the baseline that we saw in that 19% or 19 trial uh, follow-up. So there are some trials or some difficulties with that trial, but uh, we do evidence-based medicine and we just, you know, show all of the data that there is. So it's out there. Uh, at some point, uh, people realize that offering one group of patients, lots of services and the other group of patients, you know, a stack of papers that says, you know, here's some referrals go, you know, sort this out was unethical and we can't do randomized controlled trials anymore for good reason. In the observational trials tend to come uh, with uh, similar findings as well with re-injury rates in the four to five percent. Um, and this is that uh, uh, Rutgers review before where the lowest rate of re-injury that they found was six or seven percent and the median rate was about 27 percent. So we're seeing that um, in our intervention group uh, it's lower. Obviously there are you know, issues in observational trials like selection bias, uh, but uh, you know, we're 
coming together with um, a decent amount of evidence here. So for, for kids, obviously these trials are harder to do, right? Like luckily, thank God, uh, you know, the younger you are, the less likely you are to, um, to die of a gunshot wound, thank God. Um, so, you know, if you think about designing a trial, um, you, need, you would need a huge trial to get the power to do it. Uh, so some of our trials that most of the trials that we have are related to like bite injuries and, you know, less severe things. So these are two trials out of uh, Children's National um, in DC, um, looking at assault injured youth and, you know, getting at kids, right? So it is a little harder because once it's into bite injuries, it's a lot of self-report. Um, and so we have one trial that was kind of more mentor implemented, another case management uh, 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 driven. And the mentor implemented, you know, found that in this small trial uh, decreased from 7.8% of, uh, you know, repeat fight injuries in the last one month uh, to compared to 5.7%. Whereas in the case management, when you look at three months, uh, decreased, you know, from depending on the kid or the parent, either 14 or 8% to 0%. These are obviously not perfect trials. We'd like to have them be bigger and more robust, um, but you know, doing this sort of clinical trial when you, know, you all know, you know when you're taking care of kids, uh, you wanna do everything you possibly can and you know, children's hospitals are already so good at doing this huge team-based approach. Uh, towards delivering lots of services, it's just hard to do a trial. But this is what the state of the data is right now. So, um, you know, my overall encapsulation of this is that, you know, when you look at the all of the data put together, um, this is an intervention that the best evidence available suggests that these programs work at reducing re-injury and retaliation. But I would also go a step further and say that we know as a field that re-injury and retaliation is not a sufficient uh, outcome, right? This is not the only patient-centered outcome that matters, but um, addressing the signs and symptoms of trauma and addressing those social determinants of health are hugely important for patients and families. And we know that these symptoms uh, deliver all of those different services. So those are just as important. Um, you know, I don't have as much time to get through all of that, um, but we know that we can make a difference in people's lives when we do this. So, all right, switching to the, you know, last couple of slides, you know, what are some of the lessons that we've gathered from over the years from doing this type of work? And, um, you know, I started working with Healing for People when I was an intern in residency in 2011 uh, in Philadelphia um, and had been the policy director for the hobby, formerly known as the National Network of Hospital Violence Intervention Programs since 2014. And these are just some of the things that I, you know, I found over the time. So the first is that this work takes a team. And, you know, I, I showed the schematic before, but these teams are very different than standard medical teams where, you know, the doctors are at the top and, you know, you give orders and, you know, other people are, uh, you know, follow those orders. It is really much more of a flat uh, type of 
scenario because the frontline violence prevention professionals, you know, they do the bulk of the work. They are the engines that drive this. So, you know, to quote, uh, you know, one of my mentors who is a, you know, full professor of trauma surgery that leads, she's the chair of the board of the Javi. Um, you know, she used to say, she still says, I need to, you know, in the middle of surgery, she's, I need to just get this patient through surgery. So, so Mike Texada get through and save his life. Right. So it's a team sport and, you know, everyone has a turn and, you know, everyone else on the team, you know, we got to think about is probably more important than we as an individual is the way that I try to think about it. And in Connecticut, you all have a great team. You really do. And this is, I have been, it's been such a pleasure meeting with all the folks here. Um, so this is the Connecticut HVIP Collaborative and just a list. And I, I left it in there as small text, just so you can see how many people are part of this state-based team that you all have. You have the Hartford VNP, you have Connecticut uh, Children's, you've got Hartford Hospital in New Haven. You have uh, Leonard Jihad of the Connecticut Violence Intervention Program. Over at Yale New Haven, you have Dr. Doddington. Uh, and then Bridgeport, you have Bridgeport Safe Streets and then uh, Rise Hat. Um, you have a great team with so many people that are coming from a combination of community work to injury prevention specialists to frontline workers that are doing this. You have emergency medicine and surgeons and um, all these people that are part of this collaborative to learn and get the best practices and make sure that Connecticut is doing uh, the things that they need for their patients. So tap into that team. All right, second big picture. One of the biggest things that is inherent to this work is that trauma is, is out there and it can't be ignored. And I, I feel like I drove this home pretty uh, explicitly for the patients, right? It's like you're swimming in the ocean, there is a shark out there and you don't know where it is, but you know you gotta look for it, right? And it's with the patients. And I feel like I, you know we've talked about all these things you can look for, trouble sleeping, acting out in schools, getting in fights, um, uh, all sorts of different things. But it's worth mentioning that it's just as big with the team, right? So that secondary traumatic stress is real. It is something to look out for and we need to care for each other. You know, I, you know, I, I can tell you from my own personal experience, you know, I had um, years ago at this point, it was, I worked at a adult trauma center and a kid got shot, he was eight years old. And the EMS was worried he wasn't gonna make it to the children's hospital, so they diverted to us because it was the closest hospital to us. Uh, and this kid was awake, thank God, uh, but at a, um, a gunshot wound to the right side of his chest. And you know, he, you could tell he was just alone, needed family. And he, in this adult emergency department with 20 people around him and this look of fear in this kid's face, I can still remember that in my eyes, right? So that is, that's a piece of trauma that I live with. You know, it's been years since then. And I haven't forgotten that patient. And thank God we got this kid through. And um, I feel like we were able to give him some pretty good trauma-informed care. I was able to talk to the kid while, you know, he had a chest tube placed and all of that. 
Um, you got to children's uh, safely. Um, but those are things that stick with us and we need to take care of our team. So, you know, I, I will tell you from the start, like I've done this work for a while now. And when we started the program at Prince George's Hospital, I didn't do things perfectly either. And I know that I was feeling some of this trauma and I was burnt out when I was in fellowship and I was working way too much. And, you know, my frontline worker is a guy named Che. Um, and Che didn't feel like he was getting enough, you know, attention from the team and he was right. And um, it's something that, we're, that we, if you're doing this work, people are not working independently. You can't do it that way. You need to be checking in frequently and you need to be making sure that people have days off and getting vacation time and getting paid a good wage, not just a living wage, a good wage so that they're able to take care of their own uh, physical, social, emotional needs. Um, and, you know, for me and me and Jay, it, it was, uh, you know, something as simple as like making sure we send each other Christmas cards every year is something that um, that's the level of work this, you know, gets to is, you know, you, it gets personal and you have to get personal. And if you don't keep that humanistic side of things, um, it, you're going to be missing out. So on to kind of prog programmatic lessons, policy lessons. What can we learn? Same slide as before. It takes a team. Now the Connecticut HVIP also has a huge team. So this is uh, some of the members uh, we have us at the hobby. Uh, we are happy and excited to be part of it. Uh, the Connecticut Hospital Association, all of the uh, hospital and community groups. We have Giffords uh, Law Center, the national organization. And all of these groups play a huge role in trying to advance this policy thing because, you know, we all have different strengths, right? If you are uh, a doctor or a nurse or a case manager or you know a frontline person, you have the stories to tell to policymakers to um, advance this work. If you are um, Connecticut Hospital Association, you can say, hey, this is how uh, gun violence is affecting our system and our hospitals. And this is how you know we can come together. If uh, you're a huge nerd like me that uh, finds um, health policy, really interesting, and Medicaid policy to be awesome. Uh, you can get into that technical stuff that other people find really, really boring, and I'm the only person in the world that finds interesting. Um, and, you know, you can connect with uh, the policymakers at a different level. So it allows everyone to work at their own strengths and to, you know, advance things to, you know, a further level. And then uh, two last points. And let me end very quickly so we can get in some questions. One thing that, you know, especially academics ask me to me a lot, especially in this era of fake news and, you know, uh, all of that is, does research matter? And the answer is yes. Yes, it absolutely does. Um, it turns out if you're trying to get policy done, that policymakers want to know two things. Does your policy work? And can you show it to me? And then 
does it work better than the other person's idea? Because other people have different ideas for it. And how much does it cost, right? So it's this multitude of different things that you can study. So in terms of programmatic and the basic research uh, to cost benefit analysis, um, you know, there's legislators like to, you know, there's this motto that, uh, that I, I've heard United States senators say, they'll say, you know, in God we trust and in everyone else bring me data, right? Research really does matter. Um, and it matters what types of research we do. We need to think about patient-centered outcomes. It's uh, all of those different outcomes between what patients matter. So it's not just re-injury or retaliation, but it's, you know, are we making people feel better? Are we addressing the trauma? Um, it's important to ask your patients what matters to them and are you uh, making those research better? So just to illustrate this, I like to show that, so as Dr. Borup mentioned, we passed this law in Connecticut to, uh, as the first in the nation, uh, bring Medicaid reimbursement towards violence prevention services. And you might look back, going back in time, uh, you know, one thing that really, really helped was that the Centers for Medicaid and Medicaid Services earlier in this year uh, did a webinar saying all the ways that states could do it. And before that, it was part of President Biden's plan for how he felt uh, was a different tool that you, one could use uh, to fight community violence. Uh, but going back seven years, and I'm not sure Dr. Bohr knows this, the origin of this actually, and I still laugh, was my resident research project. So starting back in a decade ago, uh, we had this little idea. Uh, it was, we wrote a paper called The Affordable Care Act's Medicaid Expansion Creates Incentive for State Medicaid Agencies to Provide Reimbursement for Hospital-Based Violence Intervention Programs. It was a really, really dumb back of the envelope, or not dumb, it was a really simple back of the envelope uh, calculation, but it got things going. And then we took it one step at a time, we kept looking at it, and look where it took, took us. And then lastly, let me just point out one last thing. You know, for I know a lot of people at least have been skeptical about getting into you know, the field of violence and especially gun violence uh, in this day and age. And this is a direct quote of what a current chair of emergency medicine at a very high profile institution told me. And he said, and this is real in like 2014 and 2015, said, you wanna get into gun violence? What, do you wanna ruin your career like Art Kellerman? Um, now, Art Kellerman uh, is a famous emergency medicine physician who did a uh, clinical trial that looked at uh, the risks uh, and benefits of having guns in the homes. It found that having a gun in the home created an increased risk, uh, primarily from self-harm, and that created a firestorm in Congress, and Congress ended up basically banning uh, CDC research for gun violence uh, uh, for the next 25 years. Um, and you know, it was a huge detriment to the field because of what Congress did, not because of what Dr. Kellerman did. Uh, but that was the prevailing sentiment for 20 years. This is something that everyone I've talked to that has been doing gun violence research of my generation and a generation above has saw. And there's a whole generation of people that haven't been in the field. There's a missing generation. So 
I say this to say that there is so much room for people in this field and I, I'd invite you to join because I don't think this advice is real anymore. In fact, there's so much room to run uh, that, you know, in this last year, um, some of us have been able to just create big plans for uh, thought experience about what it would look like to fund this on the national scale. And there is so much room to run because there is so much room for help and need that I'd actually, I'd invite you to join into the field actually. So thank you. Uh, good, I got at least six minutes for questions. Um, thank you very much. This has been a pleasure and I'd love to talk to you all. Thank you, uh, Dr. Fisher, for a very provocative and, and very interesting presentation. And I'm glad you went into this. Uh, you didn't listen to your mentor there. <laughs> I think it's important for, to have people like you really engaged in this. Um, very impressed with a policy statement as a resident. Um, that's that's a new one. So uh, clearly, you know, this is a passion for you. We have uh, a couple of questions and comments from uh, from uh, Dr. Campbell. Thanks for making time to provide us with a thoughtful and informative talk as we continue to develop our hospital-based violence intervention program based in a freestanding children's hospital, mostly for patients under 18 years. What would you consider to be the most important elements to incorporate into our program model? PTSD screening, psychiatric services, plugging the patient into a community social worker, coordination of community services, or other things? Big question by Dr. Campbell. Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, I think, the number one thing I would focus on is making sure that um, you have strong frontline workers, that violence prevention professional, uh, and that you are well-staffed uh, in that position and they're well-trained. Um, those folks, if you have that piece there, um, the rest will follow, right? Um, you have community partners, you'll be, um, making sure that as you do this work, you are getting the connections to social services and tapping into everyone in the community. But the frontline workers really are the heart and soul of the programs. And I would make sure that um, you have strong coverage for making sure you have enough people there to take care of the burden of uh, illness. And um, they, they will really take your program, you know, uh, they will build it up and knowing the trauma and taking care of the trauma and connecting people to the services. Um, that's, it's hard to say one piece is more important than the other, but I will say that, you know, if you don't have that point person in the middle to be the strong connection to the patient, the rest probably won't happen. So focusing on the frontline workers, I, I think is where I would start. Thank you. Another question from the, Dr. Rob Ketter. What roles do systemic and interpersonal racism play, not just as, as the ACEs, but, but also direct risk factors in experience of gun violence? Is there a direct correlation between redlining and local prevalence of violence? Absolutely. And that's a fantastic question. And thank you for raising it because um, it's something I need to start uh, incorporating in my talk. And the, the answer is absolutely, right? So, you know, we know if you took a map of any community in the United States and look where the redlining happened, that's where the violence happened. And similarly, if you look at, um, you know, those basic social determinants of health of where there are community investments or where there is still lead pipes, it happens where the redlining is. 
we know that um, there's a great study, and thank you, this is a, um, something that I was meaning to talk about. Um, there's a study of St. Louis recently that, you know, getting at this systemic racism side of things, um, that looked at kids that were 16 to 18, right? So in most trauma centers, local EMS protocols, if you're in that 16 to 18 area, adult trauma centers uh, will accept those patients as well as pediatric trauma centers. But what the study found, and this was just in the last month or so, was that with black and brown kids, they were more likely to be sent to the adult trauma centers whereas white kids went to the pediatric centers. Hmm. And as I'm sure you all can gather, you know that you all do much better at providing all of those robust social services compared to uh, the adult comforts. It's just the way that you're all set up with having the case management and the child life specialists and all this. So what ended up happening was that because of this systemic racism and uh, where services were and how we perceive young black and brown kids to be this misperception of them, you know, being older compared to, you know, young white kids is the white kids got more services and the black kids got less. And it is a huge problem. And it's something that we need to work really, really strongly to address. So it is a fantastic question. Thank you for raising. Thank you for the response. Uh, Kevin, the last comments and then we'll close. Kyle, thank you so much for presenting today. You gave us a lot to think about. And, um, you know, I think really the emphasis on what can we do internally as a hospital, you've really laid out uh, quite a um, quite a scope of work for us to do to, to ramp up what we're doing so that we can do the best for our patients and families. And uh, you pointed out specifically that HVIP uh, specialist, and that is certainly something we're, we're working on right now. So um, thanks again for uh, uh, agreeing to do Grand Rounds. And um, uh, I think for all our partners who, who joined in to watch the Grand Rounds, it, it gives us a lot to work with. Thank you so much Thanks. for having me here. It has been absolute pleasure. And you guys, you all are doing fantastic work. So thank you. Thank you, Dr. Fisher, Dr. Marup, and everyone for joining. Uh, just a reminder, next week, we have the Center for Wellbeing Grand Rounds. The speakers will be Dr. Kroll, David Kroll, and Dr. Mark Schaefer. Uh, this promises to be a really good, good uh, presentation. Uh, it's called The Future of Population Health for Connecticut Children's in the State of Connecticut. So please log in for the way we're going to provide care in the very near future. Uh, again, have a great week, everyone. Be safe. Uh, enjoy the uh, fall weather. And uh, please join us at Dunkin' Donut Park on Sunday for vaccinations. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education, or online at ConnecticutChildrens.org slash podcast slash grand dash rounds.